0: Father, thank You that the day is coming when heaven and earth will be reunited, when all things will be fully restored and the whole of the creation, liberated from its curse, will sing Your praises. And the people whom You have redeemed in Christ will stand at the apex of that new creation, celebrating with everything else and with Jesus at our head the glories of the redemption you have accomplished for us. Until that day comes, give us grace to be faithful in our giving, in our speaking, in our preaching, in the living of our lives. Use these gifts and use us to the end that Christ is exalted in all the earth. We pray in his name. Amen. Please turn with me to Romans chapter 10. We'll look this morning at verses 5 through 13, Romans chapter 10, beginning at verse 5. Follow along. As we read God's word, this great, great word given to us through Paul in this letter to the Romans. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us as we come to this, your word. Help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to give up, to give up all of these silly things that we trust in and seek to rest upon, whether religious or irreligious. Help us to see you standing before us, a spectacular and sufficient Savior, indeed sufficient for the entirety of our salvation. Come by your Spirit and set yourself before us through your Word in the mystery of the preaching of your Word to the praise of your glorious, glorious grace. In your name do we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Okay, I've finally figured it out. It's taken me nearly 62 years, over 40 of them as a Christian. But I've finally figured out what your fundamental problem is. <laughs> and I know what your fundamental problem is because it's my fundamental problem. I share it with you. And here is the source of all of the rest of your persistent problems, at least most of them. There are some of them that don't really flow out of this fundamental problem, but most of them do. Problems like fear and worry and anxiety. Are you with me so far? Problems that lead to a whole range of additional problems and issues. So what's my fundamental problem? What's your fundamental problem that gives rise to all these other persistent problems and issues that lead to all other kinds of problems and issues? It's this. I don't like being the creature. I don't like being the creature. We went to Gainesville this last week for Kristen's wedding. My wife will tell you that I obey the speed limit. And I'm a safe driver. I drive between 70 and 75 most of the time. But we were talking and we came to the toll plaza on the turnpike and I was going too fast. And 30 minutes and $157 later, it's very clear to me that I don't like the way God is managing his universe. I don't like being the creature. I'm driving down the turnpike, minding my own business. People are flying by me at 80 and 85 miles an hour. I get pulled over for going through the toll plaza too fast, and I want to know, what about all those other people? Are you with me so far? Isn't that the problem? It's a silly little example And there are hugely massive other kinds of issues that cause us to wonder what in the world is it that is going on in the world, right? And at the end of the day, it seems to me we're confronted with what is our fundamental issue, our fundamental problem I don't like being the creature, and if I were in charge, things would be managed much differently. Much differently. I really want to be God, don't I? And so do you. And when I encounter things that are perplexing, things that are frustrating, the issue becomes my response to those things that are frustrating or perplexing. Romans 10 verses 5 through 13 is embedded in these three chapters, Romans 9, 10, and 11, where we are confronted with some deeply perplexing things. And I want to offer three admonitions to you. I want to make three practical suggestions that I think emerge from this text. And the texts around it. First, embrace the wonder. Embrace the wonder. Second, reject the heroics. Third, enjoy the riches. Embrace the wonder. Reject the heroics. And enjoy the riches. I'm going to try to weave these three things together as a kind of a a three-stranded cord, okay? Not so much in succession, but just sort of weaving them together. But I want to begin with the first one. Embrace the wonder. What do I mean? Embrace the wonder. Well, let's remind ourselves of what it is that's going on in this passage. In fact, what is going on in these three chapters, chapters 9 and 10 and 11 remember that the apostle paul is responding to a question he's responding to an issue that arises it's an issue that he's encountered multiple times it's very much in his mind as he writes this letter and it's a question that arises in the minds of his jewish listeners and it goes something like this paul this gospel that you're preaching This gospel which you say applies to both Jew and Gentile. This gospel in which you say that whether Jew or Gentile, all are saved on the same basis. That's the issue here, isn't it? That's the word that appears in this text. Right? If a person believes in his heart, confesses with his mouth, if a person believes in her heart, confesses with her mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, that God has raised him from the dead, that person will be saved. Salvation. That's the issue here. And I've said to you the last three or four weeks, that is the overarching issue for you. And for me, I mean, there are a lot of other issues that flow out of this central and fundamental and core issue. But the overarching issue is how can you be right with God? How can you, an imperfect, unholy, unrighteous, impure person, stand in the presence of a God who is holy? Please don't trivialize that question. That's the overarching question. It's the question of salvation. And what Paul has been arguing is that a person, whether Jew or Gentile, a person is reconciled to God, restored to God, saved on the basis solely of what Jesus Christ has done, His work in His incarnation, His life, His death, His resurrection, His work received by faith. That's how a person is restored to God accepting what Christ has done, plus nothing, but solely with the open hands of faith, receiving this gift by faith. And we talked last week about what that faith is, that it's trust, that it's entrusting yourself to Christ. And so the question that arises from these folks who are hearing this letter read, folks who Paul has encountered across the 25 to 30 years of his ministry. The question that arises is, but Paul, the promise of salvation, the promises of the covenant were originally made and given to Abraham and to his descendants. And the majority of his physical descendants are rejecting this gospel that you're preaching. The Gentiles are flooding to it. The Gentiles are flocking to it. But the people for whom it was intended, the physical descendants of Abraham, they seem to be rejecting it en masse. Paul, and here's the question, does that then mean that the Word of God has failed? That's what Paul says. Verse 6, Um, of chapter 9. He has that kind of language very much in mind when he answers and says, it is not as though the word of God has failed. That's the question that he's anticipating, that he's been asked countless times. And how does he answer that? How does he support the idea that the word of God has not failed even though you seek? Countless numbers of Jews rejecting the gospel that he's preaching. He says, no, the word of God has not failed. Because the promise of the gospel and the blessings of the covenant are being fulfilled. Not in the physical descendants of Israel. But in the true children of Israel who are the true children of Israel. The true offspring of Abraham by faith. The true children of Abraham are those who believe. And how do you account for the fact that they believe? And this is where he gives the example of Jacob and Esau. At the end of the day, what accounts for the fact that there is this remnant within Israel, that there are those from the physical descendancy of Abraham that do believe, at the end of the day, we account for that fact on the basis of the purpose of God in election. The sovereign, mysterious, but wonderful mystery of God's electing grace. That's what Paul says. Romans 9.11 Though they, Jacob and Esau, at the time of their birth had done nothing either good or bad or even before their birth in the womb in order that God's purpose in election might stand not because of him who works, but because of him who calls. Here's the answer to the question. Here's the answer to the question, why The majority of the physical descendants of Abraham have not believed the mystery, the wonder of God's electing grace. Has God's word failed? Has God's promise to Abraham failed? Has the covenant with Abraham failed? The answer is no. The promises, the covenant, are being fulfilled in those whom God has chosen out of ethnic Israel. And it is further being fulfilled in the Gentiles whom God is incorporating into the true Israel. So that whether Jew or Gentile, out of the fallen race of humankind, God having chosen a people in His Son from before the foundation of the world is now saving that people from every race and nation and tribe and tongue. And it is that people who are the true seed of Abraham, whether Jew or Gentile, in them are the promises being fulfilled. Again, at the end of the day, what finally explains this, what finally explains why anyone is saved, It is God's purpose in election. It is God who chooses, and then it is God who calls. It is God who chooses in eternity past, and it is God who calls in time present. He chooses. He calls out of the fallen race of mankind. Not because of deserving. We've got to remember this. His choosing and His calling are not because of deserving of any kind at all. Because the choosing and the calling are a choosing and a calling out of this single lump of clay, this fallen humanity. And God, who is pleased to discriminate and to separate, is pleased. Out of this fallen race of mankind to choose the, those whom he will save, save. At no point, we've got to understand this. At no point is salvation because of deserving. It is all from beginning to end. God's grace. And what is focused on in Romans chapter 9, verse 1 through verse 29 is the realm of divine sovereignty. And we're being invited to step on the other side of the veil. We're being invited to step into, to walk through a kind of a doorway into the councils of eternity and plumb and ponder or seek to plumb the depths of the mysteries of God's eternal purpose. And it's overwhelming to us, isn't it? But here's what makes it even more overwhelming. If in the first part of chapter 9 verse 1 through 29 we're invited to step through the door into the eternal counsels of God, into the purposes of God on the other side of the veil, beginning at verse 30, we're back on the ground. We're back on the ground in the day-to-day nitty-gritty hard-scrabble stuff of human existence. Where people being presented with the gospel, are called upon to believe. And we're going to see this later in chapter 4, or in chapter 10, I'm sorry, at verse 14, where Paul will begin to talk about the place of preaching and how preachers are sent so that people might hear and so that hearing they might believe. We move from chapter 9 in the realm of the eternal counsels of God down into the day-to-day nitty-gritty stuff of human existence where the gospel is proclaimed and the gospel is heard and people are called upon to believe. Seven times in these verses that we've read and including the four verses at the end of chapter 9, seven times Paul uses The Greek word pistis, he uses the nominal form, the noun, which is faith, and he uses the verbal form, which is translated believe, seven times. Paul is contrasting in this passage. He's contrasting two ways of gaining acceptance with God. Two types of righteousness. The righteousness that is according to the law or works, and then the righteousness that is by faith. And the righteousness that is by law is simply a fool's errand, folks. It is a fool's errand. This is what we talked about last week. Do I really want to come to the end of my life and stand before God and plead my record? The righteousness that is according to law or the righteousness that is according to works is a fool's errand. And this is where the second point enters into the discussion. Reject the heroics. What Paul is doing in these verses 6 and 7 with this rather strange citation from Deuteronomy is in effect challenging us and encouraging us to reject heroics. The righteousness that is based on faith does not say in your heart, who will ascend up into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Who is able to ascend up into heaven in order to bring the glorious Christ, into this world? And who is able to descend into the abyss to plow deep down into the underworld and bring Christ up from the dead? Who is able to do that? No one is able to do that. And the point is, you don't need to do that. You don't need to engage in heroics. You don't need to go into heaven. You don't need to go down into the bowels of Hades and the bottomless pit of eternal perdition. You don't need to go into death. Why? Because what you cannot do, God has freely done. God has given Christ. You don't need to go into heaven to bring Him down because He has come. You don't need to go into the grave to raise Him up because He has been raised from death to life by the power of God's eternal Spirit. And what He says here, what He says here, is that this Word, this is the citation from Deuteronomy, this Word is not far away from you. This Word is not removed from you. It is near to you. And this word that comes to Israel in promise form in the Old Testament, oh, my friends, I wish in the text that at verse 8, where Paul writes, what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Oh, how I wish that was a capital W. Because the fulfillment of every word is the word, Jesus Christ You don't need to go somewhere. You don't need to engage in heroics. Why? Because the hero has come. And the hero has lived. And the hero has died. And the hero has been raised again. So that you, with this word in your midst, hearing this word, may believe it. And entrust yourself to it. And be saved. I always want to be the hero I always want to be the hero I always want to stand before a holy God and say come on give me a little credit give me a little credit for my exertions give me a little credit for my righteousness give me a little credit on the turnpike going to Gainesville that I'm not a bad guy But see, what Paul is pressing here is that these heroics, these attempts to be heroic are a fool's errand. Folks, let me me put it to you this way. There is a condition which must be met if anyone is to be saved. And that condition is belief. That condition is belief. It's not law-keeping. You can't do it. You've never done it. You never will. It's not being smart enough. You're not smart enough. You haven't been and you never will. It's not about being right. It's not about being good These are not the conditions by which a person warrants, inherits, inherits, has conferred upon him or her the blessings, the riches to which the apostle refers, the condition that must be met. And God sets it as a condition is believing, simply believing, receiving as a gift and entrusting yourself to what God has provided in Christ. In your hearts you believe, with your mouth you confess that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead. Now, why is the first point? Why is the first point to marvel, to be amazed, to embrace the wonder? Here's why. Here's why, because we have in these two chapters a thing which people are all the time trying to reconcile and which we must not attempt to reconcile the mystery of divine sovereignty and the reality of human responsibility. You're in the presence, folks, of an extraordinary mystery. God is absolutely sovereign the author of every one of your days. Read Psalm 139. Before yet one day was lived, David writes, they were written in your book, every one of them. We're in the presence of divine sovereignty as divine sovereignty is brought to bear upon the human condition and the absolute and utter necessity of salvation being a by-grace appropriated through faith from beginning to end and so solely and entirely to the glory of God. You're in the presence of divine sovereignty. This is God's universe. This is God's world. This is not my world. And chapter nine has challenged us with this, hasn't it? Who are you, O oh man, to say to God? "You must not be like this." But folks, we are also smack dab right in the center of the realities of human responsibility. When the gospel is offered, there is a command with respect to that gospel. And that command is the command to believe it. To believe it. Believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth. And you will be saved. That is the necessary condition. And I mention this. I, I, I labor this. I talk with you about this because it seems to me we have a tendency to allow one of these realities to eclipse the other we try to move them to the center I've used this illustration with you before people are always trying to seek a balance right well let's balance divine sovereignty with human responsibility let's balance the human element and the divine element folks there are two ways to balance things if you think of a fulcrum with a plank on it you can balance things by moving everything to the center so that the The two things that are moved to the center are no longer distinguishable one from the other. And when that happens, the realities eclipse one another. The other way that you find balance is by being what I think Christianity is, radically bipolar. And by pressing the reality of these two things to the outer limits of the plank Affirming the truth of each. See, sometimes I've heard Calvinists say to me, and I love them. I mean, I are one. I are one. I'll have Calvinists say to me, I didn't choose Christ. Well, I want to say, well, then who did? Who did? And if you haven't, let me be the preacher of the Gospel who tells you that it's urgent that you consider the Gospel claims and that you lay hold of Christ, that you hear Him as He invites you, and you respond in faith because eternity hangs in the balance. If you didn't choose Christ, who has? And if you haven't, let me plead with you that you do it. You see, the question is not, why does anyone choose Christ? That's a different issue. Don't let the question, why does anyone choose Christ, obscure the necessity of meeting the condition of faith that one must trust Christ if he or she is to be saved. I understand the counsels of eternity, at least at some level. What I don't understand is how the councils of eternity intersect with human responsibility. I make no attempt to reconcile the two. I affirm God's wonderful grace in election and in calling that it might be a deep encouragement to those who are in the midst of life struggling to get to the promised land. That's why this teaching is in the Scriptures to encourage the hearts of the people of God. But I will affirm with every fiber of my being that if you do not embrace this gospel of Jesus Christ if you do not respond in faith the result of that failure to respond is your responsibility it is your responsibility and the consequences of a failure to respond to this invitation which Jesus extends The failure to respond is eternal in its consequence. How is it with you? Can we hit the pause button for just a second? How is it with you? See, don't please, for heaven's sake, don't make the mistake that I know some people make. They say, they look at their lives, they say, look at this mystery. They say, ah, blah, blah, blah. God hasn't chosen me. That's not the issue for you to deal with. The issue for you to deal with this morning is that you are hearing, you are hearing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God is pleased to save sinners. He's been pleased to do it from before the foundation of the world, and now in time he is presenting Christ to you and offering Christ to you as the hero you need. You don't have to reach up into heaven. You don't have to go into death. All you need to do is understand that Christ has come to redeem to save, to transform, to deliver sinners. And the question is, have you believed this in your heart today, now? Have you believed this in your heart? Not just heard it with your ears, not just sort of reflected upon it with your brain, but have you believed this in your heart? heart have you received Christ have you accepted the sufficiency of his perfect infinitely valuable work for all of your sin and for all of your eternity that's the thing you need to be concerned about this morning have you have you accepted this received it as a full and sufficient salvation for you See, don't, don't let this other stuff get in your way. Paul's dealing with both of these things. He's dealing with them because he's writing to people who have questions. He's answering questions. But let's leave what should remain behind the veil, behind the veil. And let's live on this side of the veil where the gospel is set before us and when we are, where we are called upon to believe it, to embrace it, to trust it. There are some who have questioned whether the offer of the gospel is really a free offer. They reason this way they say, since God has chosen those whom he will save, is it really honest? Is it really integrious? That is, does it really have integrity to offer the gospel indiscriminately? Isn't that disingenuous? And here's my answer No, it is not disingenuous. Yes, it is a genuine, real, and honest offer of the gospel. And I use as my example Jesus himself. Jesus himself. Matthew eleven twenty five through 30 At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father. Listen to this. Listen in these five short verses how Jesus does the very thing that Paul does in two chapters. He sets side by side the mystery of, of God's sovereign purpose in salvation and the human responsibility of a response. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. What is God's will? It is to hide and to reveal. That's His will. To hide and to reveal. Sovereignly. Discriminating as He is pleased to discriminate. Verse 27. All things have been handed over to Me by My Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him you want to bow before a mystery? You want to take your place as a creature before the Creator and say, you are God, I am not. sin confuses the first two. right? So my friend told me three things you got to remember to get along in life. God is God, you are not and sin confuses the first two. This is Jesus saying, that he, having been entrusted with all things by his Father, reveals the Father to those whom he, the Son, chooses to reveal him. And then, and then in verse 28, he says, Come, come, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle. I am lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Softly, tenderly, Jesus is calling. Jesus is calling indiscriminately. Saying, come home. Come home. Take my yoke upon you it's easy. My burden is light and you'll find rest for your souls. Folks, embrace the mystery. Embrace the mystery. Don't be upset with it. Don't fight it. Understand what pertains to the realm of God's eternal sovereign will and plan and embrace what pertains to the realm of human responsibility. Hear the gospel. If there's anybody here this morning, I said this last week, I'll say it again. I'll say it until the day I die. Richard Baxter, I quote him, I preached as a dying man to dying men. If you have not embraced Christ, I plead with you. Jesus stands before you and pleads with you that you come home to him come home to him embrace embrace the mystery don't stand in judgment of it and then finally enjoy the riches paul uses that word in this text just think about this just reflect upon this he uses the word riches to describe what it is that god gives when he confers salvation. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. Riches. What a great word. What do you suppose the riches are? How about cleansing? Cleansing. How about cleansing? How about forgiveness? How about reconciliation? How about renewal? If if any person is in Christ, new creation, renewal. How about reform? Reformation. Not in that and I'm thankful for the reformation, I really am. But not in that stuffy history book or theological text sense. But how about in the existential and very personal and very real sense of personal reformation, being made new? How about hope? What are the riches that are conferred upon the one who embraces Christ, who comes to Christ? What about the new heaven and the new earth, the prospect of the curse being lifted so that there are no longer, and I don't say this lightly or tritely, there are no longer FHP people on the turnpike waiting to pull me over to give me a $157 tax. In fact, no taxes at all any place. How about the new heaven and the new earth? He freely, gladly confers these riches and so many, many more upon those who would receive him. My friends, embrace the wonder of God's grace. Embrace the wonder of the mystery of of God's grace. Give up on the heroics. Give up on the heroics. Receive what is given freely. And then enjoy the riches. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, forgive us, forgive us, forgive us, forgive me that I am forever trying to rest in something other than the wonder of what you've done. Forgive me and forgive all of us for doing that. And I do pray for this congregation assembled here. I don't know these hearts. I don't know what's going on right now in these hearts, but you do. And, oh, God, where there is resistance, where there is unbelief, break it down, wear it down, insinuate yourself into these lives and rescue them for the glory and honor of your Son's name. That you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit might be praised. Do this. And we will thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.